this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i'm g sampath your host for today's episode in recent weeks Canada has been rocked by the discovery of a large number of unmarked graves of indigenous children. In the last week of May, the remains of 215 children were found on the grounds of a former residential school in British Columbia. And then again last week, 751 unmarked graves were found at the site of a similar residential school in the province of Saskatchewan. These are huge numbers. they point to canada's colonial practice which began in the 19th century of having residential schools that indigenous children were forced to attend these schools were state funded and operated by the church they have been in operation since the mid 19th century with the last one closing only in 1996 so what was the idea behind these schools how were they allowed to operate for so long and what does the discovery of these mass graves of children which are basically undocumented deaths mean for the rights of canada's indigenous people going forward to help us understand these questions we have with us professor david macdonald david is professor of political science at the university of guelph in canada one of his recent books concerns indigenous rights and is titled the sleeping giant awakens genocide indian residential schools and the challenge of conciliation David welcome to the Infocus podcast and thank you for joining us. Oh thanks very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. David to start with can you tell us a little bit about how and why these residential schools came into existence and what was their purpose? Yeah of course. Uh well first of all I mean the the residential schools were were set up in part to to educate indigenous children but and also uh in part to convert many indigenous children to different forms of christianity so uh they really started up at the beginning of the 19th century there was um uh, a number in ontario and other parts of the country but the first first official one opened in in 1831 and uh so the anglicans uh and uh, presbyterian churches ran some of them but the majority 70% were run by the catholic church and uh again primarily the goals for the churches were to convert indigenous peoples to christianity they thought they would basically save their souls from what they thought were pagan and and sometimes uh i suppose you could say devil worshiping practices and there were there were all sorts of superstitions at the time amongst many of the missionaries and and others about uh different kinds of religions that were not christian and so there there's a fundamental misunderstanding of indigenous peoples and and quite a bit of racism that went along with that as well uh in terms of what the governments were focusing on it was more the idea of trying to forcibly assimilate indigenous peoples uh and clear land for western settlement so as more settlers were coming in from the british isles and elsewhere uh the different governments wanted to wanted to clear the land of indigenous peoples uh and try to either destroy them or assimilate them into the growing settler economy and the political system. So that process began in the 1830s um and really by the time of confederation in 1867 it was it was developing more and more and really reached its 
sort of its high point in the 1880s and after. That's when a whole network of schools was set up. Okay. So what were the reasons uh, for the death of so many children? And, and I mean, why did uh, all these deaths remain undocumented? Well, a lot of the children died uh, because the schools themselves were very unsafe. So there were, uh, there were very, there were very unsanitary conditions. There was really practically no medical care given in most of the schools, uh, very little insulation. The heating was poor. Uh, the food, the, the children were not receiving enough food to sustain their lives. So a lot of the kids basically died of disease. There was tuberculosis rampant in the schools uh, in the early 20th century. The 1918 flu epidemic and other bouts of influenza spread through the schools as well. Uh, and the different uh, administrators in the schools knew that there was a very high death rate, but it wasn't of interest to them to prevent it. So they actually were 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 putting all the children together when they were sick and disease was spreading uh, throughout the different schools. And there was very little interest in doing anything to stop it. Precisely why that is the case is is open to speculation. And there's certainly a lot of theories about, about why that occurred. Um, in terms of the reason why most of the deaths were unreported, uh, a lot of the principals and others in the schools didn't, didn't want to uh, have high death rates recorded in their schools. Uh, so they didn't report certain deaths. They would sometimes send children home uh, to their families or their communities so if, if they were close to death, so they would die there, and it wouldn't show up in the school records. It was also the case that about 200,000 files were destroyed uh, by the Department of uh, Indian Affairs uh, around about World War II and before. Uh, so the death records that may have existed were destroyed, but a lot of the time there were no death records created because the, the schools didn't want to have large numbers of deaths recorded. It looked bad for them, obviously. Um, and because they were often paid in a per capita basis, so they were paid based on how many children were at the school, it was not in their interest to, to have that number on paper be reduced either. Okay. So wh while uh, these many uh, deaths uh... Is, is, is something which is really horrifying. There have also been reports uh, that, that, that apart from uh, poor sanitation and you know, lack of medical care and insulation and so on, there was, there was also a lot of abuse, uh, physical abuse and sexual abuse going on. Were these also uh, undocumented and were these also in some way responsible? Uh, you know, they, they could probably and do amount to some kind of torture. Do they, did they also account for many of these deaths? Well, again, it, it's all a bit speculative because we don't we don't exactly know how the how the children died from the graves that have been found. But certainly, we know from uh, reports to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, there was a whole process of uh, of assessing uh, the survivors of the residential schools and and the different kinds of trauma they'd gone through. Uh, yes, that would have certainly contributed to to at least some of the deaths. A lot of the children, because they were abused physically, sexually, or otherwise, tried to escape from the schools. And so what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has reported is that a lot of children tried to run away repeatedly. And if they ran away and were recaptured, they would be, they would be physically and otherwise abused further. Um, now, some of those children may have died as a result of that abuse. I don't know. Uh, what we do know is that some children did take their own lives. So suicide was, was a, an ever-present problem at the schools. 
We do know a lot of kids tried to run away. There are children who froze or were drowned while attempting to run from school. Um, and if a child ran away and died uh, in the wintertime, for example, where it can go down to minus 50 degrees Celsius, uh, it's not necessarily the case that the school administrators would go looking for the children, and certainly not the case that they would necessarily report the deaths anyway. So we have numerous instances of, of that occurring where the kids would run away. There are instances, again, of suicide, as I've said. Uh, murder can't also be ruled out. There are numerous survivors who've talked about uh, children who suddenly went missing or they saw uh, or heard about children who had been killed uh, within the schools. So that also uh, would probably have occurred. And we have numerous, again, numerous accounts from survivors about that as well. Uh, so it's a whole range of factors. Um, the schools themselves, as I said, were unsanitary. There were major health problems, but there were also uh, actions, really abusive, horrible actions by those involved that would have brought about uh, some of the deaths as well, yes. Okay, so uh, coming back uh, to, to the points you were raising, I mean, th this, this clearly uh, suggests uh, a, a great deal of uh, institutional abuse that has gone on uh, for more than like, 120, 30 years. So was there a broad societal consent for something like this or was this phenomenon of abuses in these schools unknown to the general public? Well, it's very hard to say. Uh, I think certainly at that time, there's a few things. I'm, I'm actually involved with a royal commission that's taking place in New Zealand, which is where I am now. And uh, what's common about the New Zealand case uh, and the Canadian case is that children weren't believed. Uh, and uh, generally, adults did not believe if children talked about different kinds of abuse they'd suffered, uh, even if it was in the home or in the community and they were going to a day school. And the same was even more true of, uh, of this situation here. Children weren't believed. And if they were indigenous children, the racism as well as the ageism meant that they were doubly not believed. But they had very little chance of actually reporting to the police who were generally racist against them and were the ones who were often rounding up the children, taking them away. Uh, it's hard to know how much uh, the average people would have known, the sort of average settlers. Uh, there were certainly reports at the time. Um, the, uh, there was a doctor called Peter Bryce who uh, self-published a book uh, called A National Crime in which he documented the high levels of deaths in the schools. Uh, there were different media reports about things like tuberculosis and other illnesses, smallpox, for example and how the death rate was much higher in the residential schools and on indigenous reserves. There's little evidence that there was much public outcry amongst the settler population about that. Uh, part of the reason, I think, is because there was a kind of a myth that indigenous peoples were not as well suited to Western civilization as Western settlers. So there was this kind of idea that indigenous peoples, for a variety of reasons, were not going to, to live for as long as, as white people would. Um, as well as sort of Western civilization progressed, uh, many indigenous peoples would, would simply vanish or disappear uh, and, uh, and Western civilization would take over. So there was a number of attitudes that I talk about in the book, certainly uh, this myth of vanishing or disappearance of indigenous peoples that was common not just in Canada, but in the United States, Australia and other countries as well. So there wasn't much resistance. There were some good people uh, on the settler side of things who, who did make mention of what was going on. 
But it would have been difficult, I think, for people living, say, in the same town as a residential school to really know a lot of what was going on uh, because the kids weren't necessarily uh, interacting a lot with, with people in the town. I mean, they might be for sporting events and things like that, but, uh, but they wouldn't be interacting socially uh, in ways where people would find out about what was going on. There would certainly have been a lot of rumors, um, but it's, it's hard to know exactly how much people knew at the time. Certainly people aren't coming forward uh, and talking about things they knew while, while these, these uh, abuses were going on. Uh, there's been quite a bit of silence about that whole side of, of this whole thing. So when, when the children in, in, in contact with their families or their parents and, and, and con conveyed to them like what was going on in those schools? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, there are cases, of course, where the kids would go back for the summer to their home communities, sometimes for Christmas uh, and other, other holidays. But that was largely at the, uh, at the direction of the principal of the school. So the principal would mainly decide what what the kids would be able to do. And uh, so, of course, some of the kids would have told their families and some of the families, and there are instances where the families were able to take their kids out of the schools and they're able to file complaints and things like that. But uh, in a general sense, I think a lot of the a lot of the stuff wasn't wasn't really discussed as as much as as one might think. But I, I'm not. It's very difficult as an outsider to know the kinds of conversations and the different power dynamics and social dynamics that went on uh, in in families of survivors. I mean, it would have been uh, there would have been a whole range of different reactions and and uh, and different levels of of children telling their parents or not telling their parents or uh, maybe in some cases being believed, in other cases not being believed. Uh, so many very different factors in each case. Right, right. So these, uh, with the with the discovery of these two sites, you know, the, the number of such undocumented uh, deaths that we have evidence for has has crossed uh, one thousand. I mean, and they have been using uh, uh, this technology of ground penetrating radar uh, to sort of unearth these sites. How likely are we to see more such uh, a mass grave or I mean, a, a large number of unmarked graves of children being unearthed? Well, I think there's a very high possibility of that. Um, the government has said so as well, in addition to survivors and indigenous organizations. Even the right of center political parties like the conservatives uh, are also expecting a lot of, a lot of uh, graves to be, to be uncovered. I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission found um, around 4,000 um, proof in, in, in the written records of about 4,000 children uh, who, were, who were killed or who died uh, in the residential schools. So most of those uh, children's uh, graves have not been found. So at the very least, we would find that number. But uh, the former head of the of chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, Murray Sinclair has said the the numbers could be as high as fifteen thousand. So there may be as many as fifteen thousand uh, children uh, children's graves discovered around the country. And I think people are ready for that. Uh, what hasn't happened or didn't happen, uh, and I don't know how much your listeners will know about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but that operated between uh, two thousand and nine and two thousand and fifteen. And uh, and they were to produce a as full a record of possible as what it ha uh, as to what had happened in the residential schools, and then to make recommendations uh, for reconciliation and 
and healing and, and other things uh, based on what they found from survivors and from the documents. Uh, the TRC begun the process of looking for the graves of all of these children, uh, but they basically ran out of money because they had to to spend most of their budget on other things. And this the and finding the graves of missing children wasn't actually part of what the TRC was funded to do. So in two thousand and nine, I believe it was, they went to the government, the conservative government, and asked for more money to to find more to investigate more from what they were hearing from survivors. And the government refused to give them, I think it was at that time, only $1.5 million. Uh, so they didn't have the money to hire the people to fully investigate all the stories of the mass graves they were hearing. And they didn't have access to the equipment. They didn't have the money to to hire or buy the equipment to, to do that work. Uh, fast forward to now, and you have the federal government uh, basically pledging tens of millions of dollars uh, for indigenous communities to get the ground penetrating radar and to do a, a full and proper accounting of, of what happened. So with the money and the will of the government behind it, I think we'll be able to find a lot more. But I mean, a lot of the survivors in indigenous communities say there's nothing to be discovered. We we knew that there were mass graves in these places. We just never had the 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 funding to carry out the work of finding the graves of all these children. Okay. So you, uh, I mean, speaking of the Truth and uh, Reconciliation Commission, I mean, they have used the term uh, cultural genocide to refer to the treatment of uh, the indigenous children in these uh, residential schools. I yeah. mean, what does this mean exactly and how do you understand uh, their usage? Okay. Well, um, one thing, uh, the truth, and I'll just give a little bit of background here. The Truth and Reconciliation was... Uh, was the end point of the largest class action legal suit in Canadian history. So tens of thousands of survivors got together and they basically uh, tried to sue the federal government and the churches that ran the schools. And there was ultimately about $3 billion that was uh, provided to survivors because of their horrible experiences. Uh, and so money was set aside for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC was not allowed to make any legal finding it was considered to be post-judicial. So cultural genocide sounds very bad, and it is, and I'll explain what it means in a minute, but it's not a, a term under international law, for example. So there's a United Nations Convention on Genocide that was uh, passed in 1948. And uh, actually what many people in the TRC wanted to do was to find the Canadian government guilty of genocide as defined under the United Nations Convention. So cultural genocide uh, was supposed to go into the United Nations Convention, um, and in the original draft of the UN Convention in 1947, uh, cultural genocide is defined as a number of things like uh, forcibly transferring children of one group to another group, exiling individuals who represent the culture of a group, prohibiting the use of a national language or a group language, and systematic destruction of knowledge, books, uh, religious works. Uh, the systematic destruction of historical or religious monuments, uh, destruction of documents and objects of historical, artistic, or religious value, uh, and so on and so forth. So it has to do with basically taking away all the different aspects that give the group its identity with the goal of destroying the group. And uh, so prohibiting Indigenous kids from talking their languages, taking them away from their parents, telling them that they're uh, 
their spiritual practices are, and their laws are are heathen beliefs and, and not acceptable. Those things all amount to cultural genocide. And uh, so the TRC was able to make that determination. If you were to look at the 1948 genocide convention, uh, one of the elements I just talked about with cultural genocide uh, is also considered to be part of genocide today, which is forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And uh, so the chair of the TRC, Murray Sinclair, had said publicly numerous times that he thought that actually the uh, the genocide convention had been violated uh, because children were being forcibly taken away to uh, to another group from their home communities. So I don't know if that fully explains what what cultural genocide is or how how the TRC came to arrive at that conclusion. Right. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, I wasn't expecting uh, to hear that that the term cultural uh, genocide is not. Uh, harsh enough, I mean, but that seems to be the case because it's not just a matter of identity. I mean, actual uh, lives have been taken, right? I mean, you've got so many deaths and, and I mean, this is like actual genocide uh, period. I mean, isn't that the case as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, you could definitely make that argument. And and the book that you cited earlier, I do make the argument that, that genocide was committed in the residential schools. I focus mainly on the forcible transfer aspect uh, because at the time the book was published, uh, the mass graves hadn't been discovered. But I think if you look at the other elements of the genocide convention, then they would, you could certainly make the argument that they've been violated as well. Um, I was I was also helping out some people uh, who were trying to get a, a motion uh, passed in the federal parliament recognizing the Indian residential school system as being genocide and. Uh, I can talk more about that later if you like, but it didn't. It didn't pass. But uh, there have been a couple of attempts to have uh, the state recognize uh, the residential schools as being genocide, and there'll probably be more attempts as well to to have that official recognition uh, be put into place. But yeah, you could you could certainly say that um, that more of the different elements of the genocide convention were were violated in these schools. And as we learn more about the numbers of people killed, I think that you know, that argument gets stronger and stronger. Right. So how would how does one understand the, the role and responsibility of the Catholic Church uh, in this uh, genocide, cultural genocide, or whatever genocide uh, we want to characterize it as? How would you understand its uh, responsibility? Well, I, th- I think the responsibility is uh, is pretty high. Uh, after all, they, they ran 70% of the schools. Um, and uh, and in some cases, as has been documented by the TRC and by other historians, uh, they even set up schools before they were being funded by the state. So there were cases where they would set up residential schools and then go to the state later and get funded for those. So not only were they, you know, a partner in running the residential schools, they actually spearheaded the creation of some of the residential schools before the government was even involved. So I would say they have a tremendous amount of responsibility. Uh, What I've found from talking to numerous survivors and organizations and people at the TRC and elsewhere uh, is that in in many cases, the Catholic schools were often somewhat or or a lot more brutal. I mean, I suppose in in cases less brutal than than the other denominational schools. But uh, but some of the worst stories that, that we've heard of abuse from survivors have 
have come out of the residential schools. What has been a big problem with the the Catholic issue is that there has uh, there is no real Catholic Church in Canada per se. There's a series of Catholic entities, so there uh, it's a highly decentralized system where there are in in Canada, for example, you have an Anglican Church of Canada and a Presbyterian Church of Canada and a United Church of Canada, but there's a series of Catholic entities. And if you look at the agreement that ended the class action suit, there is no Catholic Church of Canada. There's a series of Catholic entities who signed uh, separate agreements as part of the settlement agreement. Um, so there is no one unified entity, even though you have, of course, the Vatican and the Pope and that sort of thing. But in a legal sense, you have no one entity which is assuming responsibility, even though, of course, they they were responsible for it. Uh, and it does get kind of strange in that way because the the different entities who signed uh, the settlement agreement agreed to raise quite a bit of money to uh, to help compensate and, and provide redress for the survivors. They promised to come up with $25 million. Uh, and the other churches all raised the funds that they said they would raise and then provided them to the survivors as redress. The Catholic uh, Church or its entities uh, never did that. They came well short of the total to the point where the federal government had to take the church to court uh, to try to get it to to front up on the money that it promised to survivors, so they promised to give twenty five million to survivors, and and they never did. Um, and uh, I can't remember that what they did come up with, but it was it was very it was about four million dollars in the end, so considerably less. At the same time, the Catholic Church has been uh, raising uh, tens of millions of dollars to build new new churches around the very same time that they said they had no money. Um, there was a story that just came out today, in fact, that uh, um, there are about $6 billion in, in holdings in the Vatican Bank, and uh, the Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental landowner in the world, uh, with about 177 million acres of land uh, that it controls. So not only does the Catholic Church have tremendous responsibility for what happened, uh, it also has not assumed its share of responsibility. Uh, there has also been no apology from the Pope for the crimes of the church uh, and very little institutional responsibility. The Catholic Church has also failed the test of handing over uh, sufficient documents uh, to release its archives and other material uh, over the past to allow researchers and survivors and others to learn the full truth of what occurred in the churches. So, um, what many people have said is that the Catholic Church's main goal has been to cover up its tremendous responsibility uh, in the residential schools and the abuses that took place there, because it wants to. It, it's convinced that if people know the full truth, then potentially the church's financial situation could be in jeopardy. Now that may or may not be true. I don't know. I think the Catholic Church has got incredibly deep pockets, uh, and they don't like to admit that they've done wrong. But they do need to accept responsibility, and they do need to to come up with the funds to to properly redress the survivors for for their experiences. And it's it's long overdue, and it's it's a source of a lot of debate and anger in Canada right now. So uh, you 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 said that it's a very uh, decentralized kind of a, a situation with regard to the Catholic entities in Canada. So how likely uh, do you think are they to release uh, the records on these residential schools and allied institutions? Is it likely to happen anytime soon? Um, well, it, it seems to be getting better in some cases. So the um, 
the the people that ran the group that ran the the two residential schools, the uh, the Maryvale School and the Kamloops School, where the mass graves are located, uh, is an organization called the Catholic Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate. And so recently, they said they're going to release all documents uh, in their possession related to the schools. So because of the mass graves and the level of, I think, new pressure being put on them. Uh, some of these archives will be available, and, and they're going to try to open things up a bit more now than than they were before. But my, I, I suspect they'll just open up as much as they think they need to to reduce the public pressure on them, um, and probably not much more than that. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, so some information is going to be coming out, more information. Um, of course, it's like anything. It's like... Uh, the archives of any institution that's trying to protect itself. Uh, As I mentioned before, they're not necessarily, they didn't necessarily have great records to begin with because they had every incentive not to report deaths in the schools, for example. Um, And then records were in time destroyed. There's nothing preventing records from being destroyed uh, either decades ago or right now, for example, before they're released. So, uh, so what, what records will be found? It's it's not clear if they will provide much much evidence of anything. They may, but uh, if people are waiting for a smoking gun to have been sitting around waiting to be discovered, I, I don't know if they're going to find that because that some of that material will will be long gone by now. Okay, so uh, indigenous leaders have have argued uh, time and again that the legacy of abuse and intergenerational uh, trauma that these residential schools have unleashed uh, persists even today and is seen in the high rates of alcoholism and drug addiction on reservations uh, do you agree with this perspective and uh, and if and if so and if yes does it mean a even stronger case for reparations uh, yeah I, I would agree that there's there are some serious intergenerational issues of trauma um, and a lot of the social indicators uh, for many indigenous peoples are 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 very troubling for sure. Uh, so I think that would make a strong case for more reparations in some ways. I think it also makes a strong case for the fact that it has been the destruction of indigenous governments uh, by by the state that has led to part of this problem. So as part of the kind of treaty relationships that that we have with different indigenous uh, communities and, and governments, it's important that indigenous peoples are able to get their land back, the traditional lands that they that they had before uh, before the settlers came, and that they're able to exercise their own forms of government as well on their traditional lands. Right now, eighty nine percent of the country is owned by the crown, by the federal and provincial governments, and uh, indigenous peoples as uh, as governments only own 0.2% of the land base. So they don't have the lands to make a viable go of, of their economies in many ways. And so that needs to change. And so part of a process, I think, of reparations will be for the government to agree to um, to hand back the land that they've taken uh, so that indigenous governments can, can deal with many of these problems. And it, even if they have a whole lot of land and the ability to generate income, it's still going to be very difficult. But uh, having a paternalistic federal government or provincial governments in there trying to control things will not will not help the situation. 
Okay, so uh, I mean, uh, Canada's child uh, welfare system is, is is both famous and is also in some ways infamous. And uh, against this background of indigenous children being forcibly separated from their families and made to you know stay in these residential schools, I mean, those residential schools may have shut. But as of today, I mean, data suggests that seven percent of children across uh, Canada are Aboriginal, and yet. Uh, Aboriginal children account for nearly 50% of all children in the country's uh, welfare system. Does this mean that the old form of cultural genocide you know, still continues? I mean, are there some problematic uh, legislation that enable this? Yeah, I mean, there's still, there's still tremendous levels of systemic racism in the child welfare system. Um, and so that, that is part of the reason why, yeah, why a lot of Indigenous kids are being taken from from their families and communities. Um, it's also the case that because of all the lands being taken and the intergenerational trauma that you talked about earlier, uh, a lot of indigenous families are much uh, poorer economically than other families as well. And so there are all sorts of problems that, that go along with poverty as well. And those problems make indigenous families more vulnerable uh, to having their children taken um, so if you add up the racism and you add up these other structural and economic factors, it does it does create some major inequalities that that do continue to lead to, as you said, fifty percent of of the kids in the child welfare system being being indigenous. Okay, and my last uh, question uh, for this episode, uh, David, what has been the nature of the politics so far with regard to the rights of indigenous people in Canada, and and how will the discovery of these unmarked mass graves impact uh, this politics going forward? I mean, is it likely to improve their prospects for better representation, uh, better social indicators and so on? I think possibly if, um, yeah, if, if, if people are, are really waking up and thinking about all these things, uh, you could see things getting better. Uh, one of the ways that things potentially could get much better is uh, because recently the the Parliament of Canada passed a bill called C-15, which uh, incorporates the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, into federal law. So it basically says that uh, federal law now has to be, and past federal laws have to be in harmony with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Now, that is important for a number of reasons. The, the main one is that the uh, the Declaration uh, ensures that indigenous nations and communities uh, have the recognized right to self-determination. In other words, the right to uh, to be in control over their own lands, their own resources, uh, their own governments, their own programs, and things like that. So what you could see, uh, and, and part of the reason why uh, that bill was passed uh, was because of, of the discovery, part of the graves, but other other kinds of crimes that have been recently discovered as well by, you know, by the government and by, by settlers. So, so there's a push for for things to improve. So, um, more than the graves being discovered is uh, is the passage of of the UN Declaration. Uh, earlier, the province of British Columbia had uh, had introduced a le- uh, legislation to put uh, the UN Declaration into provincial law. So, this is going to continue, and this will provide. Uh, political and legal leverage for uh, indigenous nations to assert their rights uh, and to ask 
for more from the federal government and the provincial governments in terms of recognition of their rights. Uh, so that may translate into hopefully more political power for indigenous communities so that they can they can do what they need to do to uh, to improve the lives of their people. Um, so that would and, and that would increase uh, the levels of representation in, in different ways as well. So uh, that's probably the most important positive point that, that will come out of all of this process. This witness testimonies where they have said that where these children who used to who had gone through the system had said uh, they made us believe we didn't have souls. I mean, I found it a bit strange because uh, these were Christian schools and and if you look at the experience of the colonial project in India or in Africa, for instance, I mean, missionaries sought to get new converts to Christianity. And if you're seeking to convert these children to Christianity, why would you tell them that they have no souls? I mean, I was just curious about that. Yeah, um, I think in most cases there was a sense that I think it probably meant that they they didn't have souls that could be saved because they weren't Catholics or, or Anglicans or something like that. So um, I would probably take from that more the fact that they that there was a strong element of forcibly converting them. I think in some ways, though, there was a situation among some of the some of the people, some of the teachers and others running these schools, that uh, the kids weren't weren't redeemable. I mean, they couldn't actually be saved. So, um, and in that case, they, the high levels of abuse, you know, might have been in their minds justified. I, I'm not sure exactly what what that testimony would have meant, because uh, I think I think in general the the churches were trying to convert people. Um, and I, I was reading about India as well, how I think the third largest religion in India now is are, are different forms of Christianity, which is which is really quite interesting. So I think the the Christian churches have certainly traveled around the world and and converted lots of people. I think ultimately, though, the goal of of the churches was to convert people, and I think at some level there probably was a belief that they had souls, if you want to call it that, which needed to be saved. And I think that's fundamentally part of the reason why I think at least the Catholic Church isn't really keen on giving a fulsome apology and, and admitting really that the whole system was wrong. Because I think at the end of the day is that belief that they, despite all the abuse, they did actually uh, save people's souls, which is... I mean, if they didn't have, if these children um, and ostensibly did not have souls, I mean, how would, uh, uh, how could the church save something that did not exist i mean i, I don't understand the logic well i don't i don't understand the logic of that either um that that to me doesn't make any sense uh, it may be that some of the some of the teachers and people involved believe that to be the case but i think in other cases uh, was the belief that the children did have souls which which had to be saved for their own good and that whatever horrible things they did to the children if it led to them being Christian and their souls being saved, then it was worth it, even if, even if they were very unhappy, traumatized people at the end of, of that school experience. I don't understand the logic of, of, of thinking that way at all. But um, perhaps I were they trying to say? Uh, sorry, were they, were they trying to say that? Uh, I mean, since you don't have a soul, I mean, it's only by converting to Christianity that you can be saved, or something like that. Yeah, it, it's probably something like that. Um, I imagine it's something like that, uh, and it, or it may be that they thought, 
you know, that uh, that if if the children died, then that was okay because they didn't have souls. I, it's it's hard it's hard to know, um, and that's the thing. It's very difficult to know what what were the motives of of a lot of these people because uh, one thing the TRC wasn't really able to do was to uh, to get a lot of the testimony from the teachers and others that were there. Uh, it wasn't a royal commission of inquiry, so it couldn't actually compel anyone to give evidence. So they had a few teachers and school administrators who went and gave evidence, but uh, we don't really have a lot of insight into what these people were thinking. What what was the logic in their heads behind the kinds of abuses that they were doing? I mean, it's uh, um, you know, in, in in other cases of wartime or whatever, like we have the Nuremberg trials, or we have the the tribunal, like the International Criminal Court, or the tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and we have the perpetrators telling us why they did the things they did uh, in their own minds. What what is the logic behind their thinking? Um, we really don't get a lot of that in this case because uh, we haven't really had that opportunity. Uh, no one's been charged uh, in a criminal way for any of the things that went on in the residential schools. So uh, there's actually very little in- information about what you might call the the perpetrator motivations behind what happened. And that's that's yeah. a big missing piece in, in this story, which I'm hoping will will come to light more and more as as, uh, as time goes on. Right. I mean, any any further concluding uh, remarks uh, you would like to make, uh, David, on this as you wind up? Not really. Just that I, I think that there's um, there's some hope that um, as the UN declaration takes takes hold and tries to inform government policy, that you may see a resurgence or growth of indigenous rights in Canada and also globally, and that's that's a positive development. I think it's important that settler states do not have the legal control over indigenous peoples that they, they assert now, and they don't have control over the lands as well. So I think for any kind of reconciliation or, or redress project to occur, uh, the lands need to be returned and government power needs to be decentralized. Uh, so those are, I think, the, the key takeaway points. Uh, the residential school history is, is a history of uh, abuse of power. It's abuse of power and unaccountability for that abuse of power. So um, the key solutions, I think, are to reduce the amount of power and make sure that what power is there is accountable, is transparent, and is uh, is carefully monitored for, for the good of people. So that's probably all I would have to say, uh, I think, to conclude. Right. Yeah, I mean, those are two uh, absolutely critical takeaways. I mean, uh, to to ensure that settler states do not have control over the indigenous people's uh, rights and concerns. And secondly, uh, they get their lands uh, back. Uh, David, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much once again. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thank you again. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.